Welcome to the revolution in the airwaves. It's The Cure with Scotty and Sully. Where we don't just talk about the medical industry, we transform it. This is The Cure with Scotty and Sully. Where we don't just cover excellence, we create it. Hey, welcome to The Cure with Scotty and Sully. We got a great program for you today. We are... We are really excited because we've got um, one of my best buddies. His name's Braden Edwards. He he hit me up. Uh, we were down in Orlando, Florida, as our old college lacrosse coach of Gettysburg College was being inducted into the Lacrosse Hall of Fame. After a couple cocktails, Braden started. You know, you know, Braden is the connector of people. Ken, you you know this. He knows every human on the planet. Would you agree with me? I totally agree. <laughs> so, and I don't do that. And I don't believe it was only a few cocktails. <laughs> it was, it was, a, well, you know, this guy's like, Hey, you got to meet this guy and this guy. And then certainly you got to meet my buddy, Ken. He's, he's part of this most amazing organization. And Hey, you know what he does, Sully? He, he, he helps the, the veterans, you know, they you know, they got PTSD and they got problems. And it's a, you got to get them on a program. Would you, it, I mean, it's a bit like that. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So we wanted to get you on because your your resume is is off the charts, and I know people don't t- tend to to like to to hear their their own um, um, bios, but but we want to share the listeners. Um, we have uh, it, it's it's it, for Falk or Falky. What's the what's oh. the so so Ken Falk, um, veteran, entrepreneur, author, philanthropist, um, really cool stuff. Twenty twenty one years. Navy Special Ops vet, retired Master Chief Petty Officer. Um, what I thought was really cool, which I don't know how you do it, a thousand parachute jumps and then um, a, a thousand underwater military dives. You know, for little wimps like for Adams and I, it's just I feel like I'm not very manly when I read things like that. Um, it, it, but what's interesting to me is all of that is interesting in its own. But then you come back and you do a private life where you become an entrepreneur. And what I'm always interested in, I had, I had a business radio show for for years, nine years, called The Entrepreneurial Moment. And we had several military people on. Um, but I'm always interested in how you take all of those lessons learned, certainly discipline and team building and all of that. And then you come back and you have to translate this and and monetize it. It's not the objective, but it just so happens that what you learned over there, there's some value over here, right? And so you created AT Solutions, which is a counterterrorism company, shoulder to shoulder, a media, a multimedia tech firm. You're an author of the book Struggle Well, Thriving in the Aftermath of Trauma and Lead Well, 10 Steps to Successful and Sustainable Leadership. Um, no wonder why. Braden is mildly in love with you. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a mutual love, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I hate hearing my bio read. I always, I know, if I need to rewrite it after somebody reads it. But you know, that's a highlight. It's, uh, Sully is, you know, it's twenty-one great years in the Navy. I, you know, had a great career. Uh, did some cool stuff, and and uh, you know, I knew when I got out. I just, I. I, I got out of the Navy, quite frankly, because I I was kind of tired of bad leaders continuing to rise and rise and rise. And when I got out, my dad said to me, uh, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to start a company like you did. You know, he was an entrepreneur. My grandfather ran the first refrigerated trucking business in the United States. So I had this idea that I had some entrepreneurial blood in me. And, and, and what I realized I didn't want to do was go work for somebody else. Now, I think that was a little naive because I think even if you own your own company, you're, you're always working for somebody, a customer or employees or whoever it is. But, but what I knew was I didn't want, I didn't want to be in a, in a bureaucracy. And that's kind of what launched it all really was this, this idea that I'd gained 21 years of experience in the counterterrorism business. And, and, uh, Although it's not really a business in the military, you know, it, but it, but at the end of the day, it is in certain perspectives. And I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I could follow on. I continue to use the expertise that I've gained in those 21 years. Dan, talk a little bit about that 21 years and maybe give us a couple of lessons learned that you took. You know, you said you're a little naive in the beginning, obviously, whenever we're, any of us are starting out something new, we're going to make some mistakes and sure. along the way. But maybe some of the lessons that you brought over from, you know, your your life in the military to private, 
private life. I, I mentioned this in our podcast a lot. My dad was a 20 year Marine. And I remember when he made the jump from <laughs> being a Marine uh, to going into civilian life and just it kind of flooring him at <laughs> the difference <laughs> in how things operated for sure. Well, the transition is super stressful for anybody, whether you do four years or 40. And, and, uh, and what, what I've, I think what I've come to realize that the military veterans make great, not only great employees, but they make great entrepreneurs for, for all the reasons kind of you just mentioned is that you have these small teams that you're working with and it's just all the stuff that really highlights and brings out the power of military service kind of falls right in with the, uh, entrepreneurial world i uh i was lucky in the sense that so i i was i was a bomb disposal guy in the navy we call that navy special operations uh, a bomb disposal and i started off my first half of my career was what i would call traditional navy bomb disposal work which was riding ships and diving on mines in the ocean you know places like the persian gulf and uh I was with a unit that had dolphins and sea lions and, you know, we trained those things to hunt, you know, mines and people wow. and other things. But it was, it was in 1989, I got severely injured at a parachute jump down in Puerto Rico and uh, broke my back. I dislocated my shoulder. I had a severe concussion. Um, and, and I, it, it really it was at the halfway mark of my career. And I really thought, what am I going to do now? And, you know, my dad had this big construction company. He kept saying, get out of the Navy and come work for me. And I'm like, I don't work for him. I don't want to be in the construction. <laughs> um, and I just, I don't know what it was, but I was laying in the hospital and I just thought, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go, I'm going to get better. I want to, I want to continue this military career. And that was March of 89. I was out of the hospital in June. And uh, by December of that year, I ran the best physical fitness test of my career. And, wow. and then a year later, uh, in, in early 1990, or right towards the, the start of the Gulf War, um, I went to work for a SEAL team uh, as, as a bomb disposal guy because the SEAL's mission was transitioning really from kind of this, you know, force protection, training foreign forces world to counterterrorism. Um, I don't know if you remember the Achille Laura where they pu pushed a guy off in his wheelchair off the cruise cruise ship. But there was really the United States really didn't have before the mid 80s a, a real good maritime counterterrorism capability. And that was created, uh, you know, with the legendary SEAL Team 6. And um, and I was I was able to go over and work with the SEALs for, you know, uh, a little while and 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 then just kind of continue on in, in that journey. And, and the second half of my career really became, other than three years at the EOD school teaching bomb disposal, the, the, my, the second half of my career really became all about supporting uh, special forces units, Army and, uh, and Navy special forces units. And, wow. uh, and I just, you know, I became an expert in a, in a couple of things, uh, primarily terrorist use of explosives, bombs, and and um, and and those bombs. People in the business world, there wasn't a lot of discussion about it. But after nine eleven, you know, it it was you know when the threat was here, and you know now the crazy world we're living in, it's it was just like people wanted to understand what they could do and. And, and I thought, well, maybe we could turn this into a business. And I sat down and talked to my dad. I said, do you have any good advice? He said, yep, get a good good accountant, good banker, and a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> he had no clue about my counterterrorism uh, uh, business plan, but, uh, oh. but, but he knew I was a dummy. And he thought, uh, you got to get these three people on your team. So Talk about that a little bit in the AT Solutions business and, and give a little background on that. Yeah, so we started the company, if you remember, after 9-11 or during the, that whole time period, there was a big threat of weapons of mass destruction. And um, and one of the things that I knew a lot about was the terrorist use of weapons of mass destruction, specifically improvised ones, not so much things that are launched from the sky or dropped from planes or launched from submarines. Although I knew a lot about those because I'm, you know, in the military bomb disposal world, you you learn all ordinance. Uh, but my expertise really became in the improvised uh, world. I was stationed in Scotland in the late uh, 80s. I was able to go through the British, uh, uh, what they call the pre-Northern Ireland course, 
You know, there was a lot of homemade bombs in the United States, and there still are, thank God. Uh, but the British were the British and the Israelis had been fighting bombs for a long time. So back in the in those days, at late eighties, nineties, the experts were really in Israel and, and England. So I got to go through British bomb disposal training. And that really opened up my eyes, and I became this expert. And I I just kept thinking to myself, I wonder, you know, if there is a business plan. You know, there's places like Shell Oil that needs really good force protection, and people don't really understand. Even to this day, by the way when it comes to security forces, they don't really understand what I would say, hardcore terrorism that's going to break through a, you know, a, a, a perimeter. And, uh, and they use explosives to break through perimeters. You know, most security guards are very good at controlling traffic and controlling people walking, uh, you know, through a gate um, or looking for people who might be armed. But, you know, you can hide it. You know, you can hide in a car bomb, you can hide explosives anywhere. I mean, you Cobar Towers, I don't know if you remember the Air Force barracks that were taken down. That was a, a fuel truck. And they had built this bomb in the bottom of a fuel truck. And then they welded above it, above the bomb, they welded a plate. And above the plate, they filled it with gas. So when the security guy came out to check to make sure it had gas in it, of course, he was getting an indicator yeah. of gas because the top part of the tank was gas. What he didn't do was, you know, look far enough down in the tank to realize that the bottom half of it was full of explosives and the truck pulled right past security and uh, blew up and, you know, killed a handful of people and, and destroyed a, you know, multi-million dollar barracks facility. Wow. So I thought we could take that expertise and like bring it out to corporate America. And the Department of Homeland Security had just started. And a friend of mine had gone, had a presidential appointment, gone to work there. And he said, you know, I really need guys like you to help me at my vision of protecting the country from explosive attacks. So that's kind of how everything started. We, we, we were, you know, we were doing what they called, we still call vulnerability assessments, where we would go out to critical infrastructure sites, which, by the way, back then were labeled as facilities, that if there was an event, say a chemical facility, and an explosion occurred, that 50,000 or more neighbors, employees, would die in that event. So well, after 9-11, there were about 150 of those sites around the United States. You could think of nuclear power plants, chemical yeah. facilities, uh, those types of places, um, dams. And we went around and looked at these and looked at how terrorists would attack them. And that's kind of how the company started. And then because I had a strong training background, I had another friend at the uh, State Department who asked me if we could do, you know, bomb disposal training for foreign countries. So then we got a contract with the State Department. And then and then 2004, the first bomb went off in Iraq. Mm. And our, then our company became very popular. People wanted our expertise in Iraq and Afghanistan ultimately. And, um we, our company actually created a forensics uh, forensics program for finding the guys who were building the bombs. You know, it's, it's one thing to be a bomb disposal person and to show up on a device. It's another thing to stop the construction of that device by knowing who's financing it, by knowing who's um, building it, by knowing who's planting it. So there's all these opportunities to shut it down before the device never happens never even happens and 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 that's what we became experts in was kind of creating a system around that and then all of a sudden you know six years into the startup people started knocking on our doors and i mean literally uh and and asking us to sell the company i wasn't quite ready my business partners i think were yeah we we were hard at it i mean the first two years i ran that company i was on the road 300 days wow yeah, the third year. A long time since I was there. Yeah, it's a lot, right? It's a, it is. And, and by the way, not not in nice hotels in New York City, right? And, <laughs> yeah, Afghanistan and Iraq and you know other crazy parts of the world. So we, you know, we 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 had, we were onto something, and we had created this valuable asset, and um, specifically in the, I mean, every every. I think every sector has a big mergers and acquisition, you know, business in the defense business, other defense contractors, normally bigger ones come after you. That's what started happening. 
And once we started getting offers, then it started getting real. And quite frankly, you know, it's talking about naive. Uh, I knew you could sell a company because my grandmother had sold my grandfather's trucking company after he died. But I just, I, I don't think I really fully understood that process of what it meant for the, to sell a company. So we hired a, an investment banker and I spent two weeks up at Wall Street looking at different companies and different private equity solutions. Every small business that I had seen in, in our sector that had been bought by a bigger defense contractor, within a year, the company was destroyed. Mm. And, uh, and culture, the, you know, just everything. Yeah. Small businesses are fun. You know, big bureaucracies, at least for me, weren't the place I wanted to be. Um, so, you know, long story short, we found this private equity solution where, you know, a, a handful of my business partners and I were able to reinvest in the in this deal and also cash out. And um, and that's kind of what, you know, really led me on the journey of where I'm at today. Hey, Scotty, you and I work with a lot of companies who get acquired. And it's it's often a sloppy transition, right? Which kind of goes to what you're saying here, Ken, is how do you maintain culture? Um, if you're a small acquisition, part of a larger company, often you're you know, you're you're um, left behind a little bit. Resources and attention aren't put into those companies, and to your point, they are they often fail. What advice would you give to a uh, maybe a smaller or mid-sized business who has been acquired, maybe didn't have as nice a deal as you had? Private equity was going to allow you to, to to still have your vision. You have any tips for them? Like, what would you have done had you been put in that situation? So we can help these people. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I always tell people, and it's jokingly, you know, at the end of the day, I think when I've, 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 I've grown to become a person that has no regrets, but our company was worth a hundred million dollars more the following year. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we knew that. Um, and my wife and I, we own the majority of the company, but we had given these minority stock options out to a handful of buddies of mine who I had served with, who I knew could help us grow the company. And, you know, at the end of the day, 13 of us walked away with millions of dollars. Um, but if we'd have waited a year, like I had suggested, uh, uh, we walked away with a lot more. Um, that's probably, if, if there's a regret in my life, that's probably the only one. Uh, the private equity firm we sold to uh, was full of, of real good expertise in our sector to include a former secretary of defense, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and a real high-profile people that understood what we were trying to accomplish. And uh, and that was, you know, that was great. But my, I think my advice to, to small businesses is to really look at you know, what I would call the two major selling strategies. Is this, do you want to be acquired uh, by a strategic partner where you know that, that your company culture probably won't last. They're buying you because they, they like your customers, they like your products, they like your right. services, whatever it is. Or this private equity firm where you still want to be around, run it, and then try to grow it and take it to the next level. Which some, and, and, and I thought I was capable at the time, uh, some entrepreneurs just aren't capable of, right? Some people hit this threshold where they're going, wow, I've, you know, I've grown this thing to $50 million and now I'm I don't know how to get it to a hundred. So a lot of times, even in the private equity deals, we'll bring in another CEO. But I think my advice is to really explore both of those things and, and to really understand yourself and and what it is you want to do post acquisition. Because I used to, I used to after I sold my company, we bought four companies, and each one of those integrations is, you know, as you said, solely a super challenge. But I used to say jokingly at the over at the private equity firm when I would go over there, you know, every company we buy, their CEO wants to be the CEO. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it's hard, right? It's like, where do they fit in? And in almost every case, there's four companies we bought. In almost every case, the, the, the founder slash CEO uh, was gone within months. Right. Because, because it was different. It wasn't bad. It wasn't, it wasn't better. It wasn't worse. It was just different. And yeah. differences made it difficult to get up and go to work in the morning. Yeah. So I always tell people to make sure they fully understand or at least have a good understanding of what their vision and their goals are for the next several years. Because in a big strategic mer uh, merger or acquisition, you're probably going to be gone. And then a 
private equity firm deal, they're probably going to want you to stick around and continue to grow the company with their expertise. Yeah. And well, and on the in, uh, on the individual level, so so I have a, a a buddy of mine who I grew up with in Waterbury, Connecticut, and um, you know he he did great, Harvard Business School, blah blah blah. But he was a pretty directive leader. He will admit this, and he became the the uh, president of Terminix, you know, the old bug killers. And he said, I went into that place and I had my vision, and and damn it, everyone was going to know what my vision was. And he said he had a guy who had been there probably 30 years who sat down with him one day, and everyone loved this guy at, at, at Terminix. And he said, you know, Bill, the, the guy before you, the CEO, he had some good ideas too. Right? And he says, he said, I sat there and I said, I never really thought of it that way. Right? And so from a leadership perspective, you need a little humility to, to understand that um, you, you have to sell your vision in the right way, and, and, and being directive rarely works, right? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, you, you said the H word, and I think humility is personally. I mean, when you look, when I and I, I've, I, when I w- wrote this book on leadership, lead well. Um, I, I went around and I had interviewed lots of different leaders, you know, and, and trying to figure out how how it all fit together. I think one of the things that I, I I realized after analyzing them and then looking at myself and looking at this kind of reason, if I go back to why I got out of the Navy, because I was tired of these military leaders getting promoted who weren't quality people. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I thought about what, what was the difference between a good and a bad leader? And I think at the end of the day, that's, that's it. Is this humility because people that come in with this level of arrogance and narcissistic behavior uh, will drive people away, and um, and you see it every every single day. I've become through my philanthropic work, and I've become close to the two founders of the Home Depot, who are both you know multi billionaires, started off as super poor children from immigrant parents, and have, have lived the American dream. And and I remember one of them, Bernie Marcus, uh, telling me the story of of a CEO that they put into Home Depot, who was basically a, all this culture and everything that they had built just was destroying it, you know, and the stock price going down. And, you know, it took a big, a, you know, a big effort to fire that guy. And it's 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 hard. It's, it's just hard when you have that type of, of attitude that it's your way or the highway. And could you talk to the other one about getting rid of our Atlanta Falcons head coach, please? <laughs> I live in Atlanta. My son is a huge Falcons fan. I'm, I, I watch him. I'm a, I'm a college football fan. I don't watch a lot of pro NFL stuff, but yeah, I listen to sports radio every morning, and the Atlanta people are all. all over them. Arthur's such a great guy, you know. He is. Um, I've sat in the owner's box with him a couple times, and um, and and he actually wrote the forward to my book, Leadwell. Um, and and he is so committed to making that team great. You know, for, I know he is. He loves Atlanta. I mean, it's just yeah. I don't know how else you could say it, but he just Arthur Ambury love Atlanta. One of my closest uh, golfing buddies here in Atlanta is Brian Finneran, who played for the Falcons for eleven years and knows Arthur real well. But he does the morning talk talk radio and so i listen to him you know and i text him during the show in the mornings just to give him a little fuel for the fire but uh yeah i just uh, they have so much talent on that team it's just they i just feel like they're not uh they need to be coached a little different i got a i got a real timely question for you with some stuff and i don't i don't want to get too deep into what into the companies that are dealing with some struggles in our industry right now, but I'll I'll give you a little bit of tidbit about one just lost a ma- major manufacturer that they represent, which is going to be a huge hit to their their business. So it's a huge struggle for them going into this year. Two of the other ones just got hit with cyber attacks mm-hmm. in a, just a dramatic way, and it is going to affect thousands of sales reps across this across the. It has been for the last six months. And you wrote the book, you know, struggle well, you know, thriving in the aftermath of trauma. Can you talk to those folks a little bit about kind of that book and and some of the key takeaways from that? Yeah. Well, let me uh, let me tell you a little story to to lead you up to that uh, point, and then bring me back because uh, I don't want to get too far off track. But so we sell the company, 
Um, well, first of all, but back up to like 2004, the first bomb disposal guy lost leg that who lost limbs in Iraq had been medevac back to DC. Uh, his sergeant major was a personal friend of mine, called me and asked me if I'd meet this guy at the hospital because the sergeant major was in Iraq as well. So Julie and I go to the hospital and we're thinking, okay, we'll help this guy. We'll get his family to the hospital. We'll pay for his mom to stay in a hotel or whatever else we needed to do. And we did all of that. And I thought, you know, as a veteran of the first Gulf War, I'm thinking, well, this will be over three months anyway. It was the longest war in our nation's history. We were at war right. for 20 years. And just in our small bomb disposal community, which is each service has a bomb disposal element, but the, the total numbers are under 7,000 troops, you know, which that's Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And when you look at the SEAL teams, which is another small elite unit, they're probably at 10,000 just by themselves. So this is a really small community. And when I got out of the Navy, we used to say there were always 1,000 Navy bomb disposal guys, 700 enlisted and 300 officers. It's grown a lot. I think it's about 2,500 people now, but um, for obvious reasons. But, you know, when, when I was in, it was a fair, you know super small community. But anyway, we saw 11 more amputees that year, and, and we, my wife and I actually created a foundation called the Wounded EOD as Explosive Ordnance Disposal or Bomb Disposal, created a, a, a charity called the Wounded EOD Warrior Foundation to help these amputees. And then we started bringing them out to our house. I live about an hour west of D.C. in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and, and we had a big farmhouse, 200 acres of land, and we started bringing these guys and their families out to our house. And... I came home one night and my wife had this idea. We had, if you thought about this property we owned, we had about 10 acres of, you know, park-like grass around our house. We had about 150 acres of, of uh, woods and then about 37 acres of horse pastures. And we used to call the pastures the meadows. And my wife said, why don't we donate the meadows and we can build some cabins there and let these families, instead of coming to our house, have them have their own like home away from home. And that's really what started me on this philanthropic journey. We donated 37 acres of land. We put up, you know, millions of dollars, went out and raised, you know, millions of dollars and, and, and built the nation's first retreat center for military and veterans. And the first year it was mostly amputees, guys that were in this hospital. But we knew that as the war wound down, the physical injuries would wind down and these invisible injuries would, would, would really ramp up. And... And what I got to know really well, not only through um, our personal family uh, struggles, but through watching my friends uh, in the Navy bomb disposal community, by the way, in the last 20 years, we've lost three times the number of guys to suicide than we did to, uh, to deaths on the battlefield in a war. In wars, by the way, in Iraq and Afghanistan, that the primary weapon of choice by the bad guys were bombs. <laughs> I mean, we, I, it's not unusual to talk to a Navy bomb disposal guy who was in Iraq for a year and disarmed 10,000 bombs. It's crazy, the, the work that these guys did. So um, so what, what, you know, we had a little bit of an internal family uh, mental health uh, uh, challenge, and then I was watching all this stuff happen with the military, and I... I was struggling with it. I kept thinking, why, you know, why are people, why do some people do really well in the aftermath of trauma? And why do some people, uh, you know, really struggle? So I took a trip around the U.S. I went to all the top medical schools that trained psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers. And what I really walked away from that trip was realizing that the mental, you know, the medical community in our country, although it's probably truthfully the best in the world, it's, it's got a lot of problems. The mental health community has got a hundred times more problems yeah. uh, to include primarily since we're talking about leadership, a, a, a leaderless <laughs> uh, 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 community, right? They, they, they're led by associations they are driven by insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. You know, it is, it is a terrible, terrible system. And on this journey, I took around the U S I met this doctor in uh, North Carolina, UNC, who had coined a term in 1995 called post-traumatic growth. And the idea of post-traumatic growth is that no matter what happens to us in life, that we can thrive on the aftermath of it. Now, the doctor's name is Rich Tedeschi. And I said to Tedeschi, I said, I understand that you've, you've watched and you've studied and researched the outcomes of 
people who have experienced trauma and gone on to do really great things. But do you think we could teach people who are struggling how to do that quicker than what naturally happens to a lot of people? And he said, you know, nobody's ever asked me that, but I'm willing to try. And that's what we did. We set up a program um, to teach men and women who were struggling how to thrive. And um, and that program, had, you know, what started out as, you know, maybe helping 100 people a year. Last year, we helped 10,000 people. And we just tried to figure out, you know, what the right recipe is. And, and the idea is that you have got to really take advantage of these opportunities when these traumatic experiences happen to you and learn from them. And it's, it's, it's much more complicated than I think we can get into on the podcast, but the high level overview of it is once you understand that, that why that trauma happened to you or why that incident happened to you and, and you can get out of that victimhood mentality, because that's the first reaction that we all have. Okay. You know, shit hit the fan. I got a black cloud over my head. Something, you know, yeah. something's wrong. I got to fire my BD guy. You know, he, he dropped the ball on his contract, whatever the story might be. Once you get out of that victimhood mentality and think, okay, how do I learn from this and how do I grow from this? Then you're on this path to, to, to righteousness, basically. And that's what we've created at Boulder Crest. And, uh, Yes, we only primarily serve uh, military and veteran personnel. We've had a couple of professional athletes come through the program. We've done some work in a high school. Uh, you know, suicide suicide in this country is an epidemic. 125, 100, 140, I think they said post-COVID, 140 Americans every day kill themselves. And about 25, 30 of those are, are military veterans yeah. or, or active duty military. So- Yes, we're focusing right now on this, but, you know, um, but I, I think what we're doing is really applicable to, to anybody. Um, and I and I, I gave a TED talk a few weeks ago. I would, you know, recommend your listeners or people who are struggling to look at and then take a I, I don't want to sell books here on your podcast. No, please. But take a I've book, it, man. Pick, pick up, you know, struggle well and read it and and, and go through the steps of what post-traumatic growth offer. And um uh, and I think really that'll that'll set you on a journey. So, who's so the name of the TED Talk? The TED Talk's called "Struggle Well, Thriving." It is not the trauma. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, that's great. So, so um, Ken, I, I I became great friends. I live in Kansas City um, near Fort Leavenworth, and they have the Army Staff and Command College here. And so you've got all branches come in, and I became friends with a couple Special Forces guys. We were I mean, great family friends. And uh, one night um, before graduation uh, from 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 the, the college up there, my buddy says, hey, uh, Sully, how about you and Leanne, who's my wife, uh, meet us for dinner down at the plaza. We're going to be bringing out about 10 of us couples. Um, and a few of them just got back from Afghanistan. And, you know, we're we're there and, and having a great time. And right across from me was a guy who had gotten back three days earlier, right? And he wasn't talking, and you could tell he wasn't comfortable. And my buddy Ed, who's sitting to my left, you know, he hits me on the on the lap, and and he and he whispers in my ear, and he says, "I, I want you to look at him right now." And I said, "I have been looking at him." He's like, "What do you think's going through his brain?" I said, "I have no idea." He said, every one of us is going, has gone through what he's going through right now. He's looking around right now at this dinner and he's looking at, you know, we're on this little balcony and people are down there dancing or doing something. And he said, he's thinking, how can these people be doing this? How can they be having so much fun? I feel guilty that I am here. It, and, and he said, we all go through it. And I said, well, you know, how did you get out of it? And we couldn't get into it because he was sitting right across from me. We talked about it later. And he said, you never get over it. He said, but he feels horrible, right? He doesn't want to be here. And it made me just so aware of, of um, certainly how lucky we are as civilians. And, you know, of course, there's this 
the thing that we're, we are, as civilians, we feel guilty and we're so proud and thank you for your service, but we really don't understand what's in the brain of these people that ultimately leads to these suicides. And, and I think what's so amazing about an organization like Boulder Crest or, or many of the others that are out there, um, you're helping them, but I, I also think a bigger thing you're doing is is helping us understand that the problem exists, but but maybe even helping us understand deeper than that, maybe what's in the heart and the head of these people, right? It's one thing to stroke a check at a charity event, but it's another thing to take time to just understand that they really need even more than just a check, right? They, 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 they maybe just need our understanding. And and um, I mean, that, that was wild to me, you know, and of course, it you know, it puts guilt on the civilians like I feel. How can I be happy? There's just so much wrapped into this that came as a result of these wars. And, and so I just think it's amazing what you're doing. Um, how, how do you help folks like us better understand it and then do something with it rather than just saying, hey, thanks for coming on a podcast? Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it, I have a lot of friends of mine that get really frustrated with this kind of thank you for your service thing. I, yeah. I've always, I've always, you know, I mean, nobody, I grew up during the Vietnam War and in a very, very military neighborhood, eight miles from Washington, D.C., eight miles from the Pentagon. And, um, you know, I saw my friend's dads come home, get spit on and called baby killers and, you know, and all my childhood mentors and bosses, my scout master, they were all military guys, colonels. And my scout master was a Green Beret colonel. So it's like, you know, you, 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 you watch what happened and, and then you watch what happened to this generation, which by the way, when I talk to this generation, I tell them you're at a fork in the road to either become the next greatest generation or the most entitled generation. And you got to be really careful on which path you take. Um, but I, I, I think having a conversation, a thank you for your service, and then, you know, what'd you learn in the military? You know, are you moving into our community? Is there something I could do? I know a lot of people in this area, you know, to, to, to do the same thing you might do with any new neighbor that moves in is, is to have those those conversations. And the conversations might be superfluous at first. They might be really what I call wave top kind of conversations. But as you get to meet people and veterans, they, they normally open up and and, and tell their stories. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's really what we hope is I always tell people that there, there's this spectrum of, of veteran love and hate on one end of the spectrum. You've got reverence, you know, thinking that every military guy that served was a hero, which is total bullshit, by the way. On the other, <laughs> on the other end of the spectrum is, um, uh, is this whole, um, whole idea of pity. Oh, poor Johnny had to go to war and, you know, came home and he's missing an arm and, you know, and it's because it, it, that's not a true story. And but in the middle of that spectrum, if you will, is respect. And I think yeah. that's where we have to come back to. And and I don't by the way, I don't think it's just for military. I just think it's for humanity sake. I mean, we're we're in probably a country that's been the most divided in our times, maybe since the Civil War. Um and I, and I just think that it's something that, that we have to do with everybody is really find a way to respect other people's opinions and to have hard conversations around them. And it's not always easy. It's, 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 it's not always easy, but that's, that's where we are. And then I, I, I wasn't sure where you were going with that question, Sully, but I was going to tell you, I, in Struggle Well, um, uh, Scott, you asked me, you know, the, this philosophy. So I was, I would say at the highest level, if there's a secret to life, whether you've, you're military and you've had trauma or you're a civilian and you've had trauma, if there's a secret to life, it's simply this. Learn how to live in the present. Learn how to reflect and learn from the past. Because if you get stuck back there, I always tell yeah. people, if you're stuck in the past, you're going to suffer with depression. And then once you start suffering and get diagnosed with depression, you're going to get medicated and the rest of your life's going to suck. <laughs> you know. And if you just worry about the future, you're going to have anxiety because you can't control what's coming mm. So it's live in the present, reflect and learn from the past, and plan for the future. Set goals. Make sure you've got, you know, you lose, even if you lose a big contract, there's another one out there. 
It, and, and, and I love it. And that's what you got to be focused on is what are the goals to get to that next, that next level of my life? And that's, and I always tell people that's, that's whether you're working on yourself or you're working on your business or your family or whatever it might be. But, but, but if there is a secret to life, that's, that's what I think it, 62 years into this, I, I think that I would tell you um, is the secret. And it's hard. It's hard to live in the present. You know, you all got our phones and we're, you go out to dinner and you see a whole family sitting at a dinner table texting and, and they're probably not even texting each other. So it's, it's, it's pretty bad how disconnected we've become from, from people. And, and that's what I, you know, work a lot to, to help. That's- that's great. I um, it's funny. I saw something yesterday. I don't know what I was. I was staring at my screen, and it showed it was it showed your your life by months in dots. Have you guys seen this? No. And so it shows the you know, x x number of your life. Um, you're gonna spend sleeping. X number of your life you're gonna spend at work. X number of your life you're gonna be driving a car, and then it showed x number of months of your life that you'll spend staring at a blue screen. And I mean, it's, I sent it to both my kids and, and the, and the oldest one said that he goes, that's almost morbid. Um, like it's, it's, but it's reality, you know, get your head out of that screen. My, uh, dad, my dad used to say secret to a great life. And this, you know, my dad's a man of the forties, 50. So you gotta, you gotta uh, be a little, <laughs> but a secret to a good life was a good mattress and a good job. <laughs> my dad was a fitness guy too. He was always doing something, you know, working out. He was, he was a policeman when he first got out of the army, just, you know, just always stayed in shape and always did his thing. But my dad, my dad's philosophy was if you're going to have any element of health in your life, you've got to get sleep. You've got to get good sleep. Yep. And, and, and if you're going to have any happiness in your life, you've got to have a good job. You got to want to get up and go to work every day. Mm-hmm. But if you think about, you know, that, that timeline, you've got, you know, eight, let's say eight hours a night you sleep, eight hours a day you work. If you live where I live, you two or three hours a day commuting. <laughs> and it's the shortest periods of our life that we spend with the people we love the most that we fuck up the most. <laughs> right. And that, and that was my dad's whole philosophy was how do you, you know, if you can get a couple of things right, then when you come home from work, you're not pissed off. You're not kicking the kids or kicking the dogs or whatever, you know, whatever people do when they come home from work frustrated because work sucked and they didn't sleep well the night before. Or the yeah, only absolutely. way they got to sleep the night before was to drink themselves there. It's just, it's, it's, yeah. it's hard. I mean, there's, it's, it's simple things that can fix our problems, but they're super hard to execute. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's the story of life really, right? Yeah. Well, I think we often go back to what you said earlier, how our our country's divided. And the the thing about the work environment is I think we all try to be our best. Like you you wouldn't walk down the hall to see a marketing guy and say, I heard you voted for Biden. You wouldn't do that at work. (laughs) But when you get in your car and you, you jump on that phone, you have no problem under your alias on Twitter firing. Now, you know, maybe as a salesperson, you're supposed to show interest and ask questions and be a great listener and really understand those customers. And then you get home and you don't ask your spouse questions and you don't listen to your spouse. So so in the work environment, we for some reason, why do you think we're triggered to be the best versions of ourselves there and then outside we're not? Why, why is that? It's, it's, it's like I said, it's hard to describe, right? Families are hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to raise kids. It's hard to do a great job at. It's hard to have these long-term, you know, relationships. And I've been married 40 years. It's, I've got two daughters and five grandkids. And it's like, it, it's just, it's complicated, the whole thing. And it's, it's just, I, I, I think the short answer to your question is I think it's easier at work. <laughs> yeah. Than it is at home, right? I think the, the easy button is a, is a lot easier at work than it is at home. I think that's the that's short answer to your question. I think the longer answer that, that you know, we could talk about probably on a whole other podcast is this this uh, whole idea of, of really being present when, when you're home and understanding what people are saying. There's a great, I saw a friend of mine from England over the holidays sent me some meme and it was this guy standing there leaning on the fireplace talking to his wife and she said, you know, um, something about 
you never hear me when I'm talking to you. And he said something about here and the rhyming word was beer. And he said, okay, yeah, I'll take another beer or something like that. But it's, it's, it's the case, you know, and it's, I can't tell you how many times my wife and I are empty nesters and we go out to dinner a lot. I can't tell you how many times we've been at dinner, the whole family sitting there on their iPhone. Yeah. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. Hey, but buddy, another good, good commercial. Uh, Scotty, I remember this one a few, few years ago, like a guy had his phone and his wife comes in to the kitchen and the lady says, um, honey, do I look fat in this dress? And he goes, you betcha, hon. <laughs> That's what made me think when you're bringing up the, <laughs> you're, you're bringing up the, hey, what, one more th- thing before we, 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 we just move out of it, just a bit into your, your book, uh, Lead Well, as you two were talking, um, and Scotty, specifically, you and I, um, with our clients who are dealing with through the struggles of losing a product line, and and as you described, the you know one of our distribution partners struggling. I, I think what really stresses people out is uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? And I, I I I saw a great TED talk recently. I can't tell you who it was, and and he described it as, you know, if someone's dropped in a desert. The most stressful part is that you can go any direction, and that's stressful, right? It's that uncertainty of where should I go is what stresses people out. If there was a road out there, it would take a little bit of that, that stress away. And and I think, Scotty, with, with the clients that we're talking about, it's they feel like they're dropped in a desert right now. It's that uncertainty. And so I don't know how do we help people creates some certainty. And of course, my only answer is, is by establishing what you said, Ken, is these objectives and these goals and keeping them in front of you. Get, get yourself someplace to go towards and then hold yourself accountable to you getting there. It drives purpose of what you're doing. And I, and I think um, I think that applies to a lot of people who either don't manage their time well or, or just um, uh, sort of reactive to their day. That there, that that's a, that uncertainty. I think causes stress. Yeah. I, I, what, I, what's your take? It's you know what is uncertainty. I guess is that you know again it goes back to this idea of future. Have you set a plan for the future? You get dropped in the desert. You know by by the age of ten or eleven, most people know the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. I mean, maybe it's not a road, but there's something there, right? There's some indicator of of of, of what I'm gonna what I'm gonna do. I, I tell you a, a quick story. So on this journey around learning about mental health and getting frustrated with this mental health system and talking to Tedeschi, I said, well, listen, you know, I know you've done a lot of research on, on he had, he had, his specific research was around cancer, uh, families who had lost children to cancer. And I said, but have you ever done anything with the military? He goes, yeah, actually, we studied uh, prisoners of war from Vietnam. We talk about uncertainty, right? And, uh, and 30%, just to give you some quick numbers, 30% of Vietnam vets came home and were diagnosed with PTSD. 4% of prisoners awarded. Now, I can't imagine, personally, I've been in combat, I can't imagine anything worse than getting captured and tortured on the battlefield. And not like terrorists do today, where a day or a week later, they put you in an orange jumpsuit and kill you. I mean, these men were in prison camps for six, seven, eight years. And one of them, I've become really close friends with him a retired Navy captain named Charlie Plum. And Charlie tells this story. It's simply this. He was in an eight-foot cell, but once he realized that it wasn't the eight-foot cell that was constraining him, it was the eight inches between his ears, then it, it became a whole different life. And that's what that's when you can reframe things into a positive manner. And I'm not, you know, I'm not into this, you know, positivity crap that people try to sell you. What, what was the old Saturday Night Live skit where you looked in the mirror? And, oh, great. I'm just looking. I'm, I'm going to come to the day or whatever the hell. Daily but, affirmations. But I, we, well, yes, exactly. And, and uh, But it's like this whole idea that, that that we can reframe the way we look at these things. And I think that's what's, what's super important. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. All right. Hey, um, as we wrap up here, um, where can people learn more about Boulder Crest and either get involved financially? It, it would whatever. Just we'll start with awareness. Where can they learn more? Yep. So the we're all over social uh, media, and um, and the website is Boulder Crest 
uh, B-O-U-L-D-E-R, crest.org, O-R-G. And uh, you can learn as much as you want. There's lots of good resources there to include, you know, getting a full understanding of post-traumatic stress as well. So um, that's that's a great place to start. And I tell everybody, you're going to help any nonprofit, whether it's Boulder Crest or any of the other hundreds of thousands of nonprofits that exist. There's three ways to help. You know, the first way is to follow them on social media and share the work through your network. Because even if you don't have financial means or time to volunteer, there might be somebody in your network that does. The second thing is to volunteer. Try to get out and help them. Every nonprofit in the world needs volunteers, whether it's your local animal rescue shelter or uh, or the you know Red Cross. Everybody needs volunteers. And the third way is to contribute money. And, and, and money's, money's hard, especially when times are tough. But it's... Um, but it's something that I think we need to do, especially the folks that have been, you know, super successful and need to remember where they came from and, and to give back in some form or fashion. Amen. That's awesome. Um, and, and of course, finally, uh, your book, Lead Well, found on Amazon. It's only a couple of years old. I, I went through the um, few, few of the pages online. What I like about it, they're very simple concepts. Right. Very simple things that you, that you can learn. And, and you know, even as you go through here, look at this table of context, lead yourself first. There's so many things that we could talk about. And um, but first thing I'm doing is I'm going to Boulder Crest, check out how we can help there. And I'm going to buy Lead Well by my man, Ken Falk. So, Ken, thank you so much for joining us, man. We're blessed to know you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Ollie. Thanks, Scott. And uh, Dan, great to meet you, bud. Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's been good. And if there's anything I can do, you want to get on another call one day and just talk about lead well, I'm happy to do that. I know you're... Well, final thing, and I think the reason why Scott wanted to talk uh, about trauma is his Crimson Tide is not going to the national championship. <laughs> so I think he posted as like a, like a, you know, I have a client uh, who's going yeah. through trauma, you know, so know, maybe get him up into uh, the owner's suite at Atlanta Falcons game <laughs> for more trauma. And then he's definitely yeah, exactly. going to need your help. Exactly. Get, uh, get him a no bunk tra- bed at Boulder Crest. No us. trauma here for the Crimson Tide, buddy. That's like I tell people, that game didn't change one thing in my life. Um, <laughs> you I'm, keep telling yourself, but I'm, I'm a Steelers fan, so I'm a Steelers fan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. God bless. We'll see you next time. Ken, yeah, thank you, bud. All right, you've been listening to The Cure with Scotty and Sully.